Once when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him and said, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he ordered him to tell no one. Go, he said, and show yourself to the priest. And as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing for a testimony to them. But now more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. But he would withdraw to the deserted places and pray. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amazing stories in the scriptures, don't you think? It's just when you try to imagine what that would have been like to have experienced Jesus coming into your midst and and offering healing. It's very powerful. Well, this morning we're going to start with something that came to my attention about two years ago, that loneliness, particularly in the parts of the world that are most wealthy, has risen to epidemic levels. So also in the U.S., but in other places, particularly in Europe, they're experiencing, as they survey their population, that so many people are experiencing deep, deep loneliness that it has become quite a problem. I mean, when you think about the word epidemic, especially during flu season, right, you think about something that, that it doesn't just affect anymore the person who has the problem. An epidemic affects the well-being of all of us and the community. And, and this is what they're telling us, that loneliness in the United States has risen, risen to epidemic proportions. These were some of the statistics that were quoted, that two out of five people say their social relationships are not meaningful in their life. For example, if they were asked, you know, tonight you had a crisis in your, in your family or in uh, uh, your own life, who would you call? And they say, I don't know. I do not have a connection deep enough with anyone else that I would know who I would call. Two out of five. Another statistic that was quoted is that one out of five would say they experience feelings of loneliness or isolation often. 20% of the population says that here in the United States. But if that is true, you probably don't need statistics to tell you this. In fact, likely you know it through your own experience. Either you or someone that you know uh, experiences loneliness. So we come back to this nagging question which launched the sermon series for us last week. And I know those of you who attend regularly at 11 o'clock, we had a special celebration, didn't we, of paying off the, the mortgage of this building, which was wonderful, uh, wonderful celebration. But at 940, we started this sermon series we're calling, Pastor Heather and I are calling Ancient Glimpses. And we started with this question. Do you ever wonder if there's something more to your faith? Do you ever wonder if there's a resource yet that hasn't been tapped? That perhaps at a previous point in your life you experienced your faith in such a way that it was powerful to you, but 
that has kind of shifted or, or moved away. And, and now you're wondering, is there anything more? And specifically, today we're asking the question, could our faith have anything to say to the demon of loneliness? Friends, if this has reached epidemic proportions in our culture, in our world, at a time when we are more connected to each other in more ways than ever before, when we carry around in our pockets a way to connect with people anywhere around the world, and yet we feel more and more lonely, does our faith in Jesus Christ have anything at all to say to us what resources might be available in our faith? And so that's, that's the, the track that we're on for this particular sermon. Um, we're going to be, begin with the gospel text this morning. The text tells the story about a leper who experienced healing. And we know by definition that this is a lonely person. Because if you were a leper, then you were a person who was cast out of community. The disease was considered so communicable, so infectious, that you either went to live in a leper colony where everyone else already had leprosy, or you lived by yourself. And so the fact that he was a leper meant that he was sentenced to a life of loneliness. The biblical laws of cleanliness would have forced him to leave the city and to live in the desert. And anytime we hear the desert used in the scriptures, it's a symbol for us of, of kind of isolation or being alone. So it is a surprise in this particular passage that Jesus encounters him in the city. Why was he in the city, friends? He wasn't supposed to be anywhere around people who didn't have leprosy. We don't know, really. Maybe he came looking for Jesus. Maybe he'd heard tell that Jesus was able to offer healing. Or maybe he just couldn't take the isolation of his situation any longer. And he was willing to, to break the law, which he did by entering the city. But what the scripture tells us is that upon seeing Jesus, he bowed his face to the ground and begged Jesus. You remember what he said? If you choose, Jesus, you can make me clean. But I would remind us and even ask us to imagine that, that there's an image in the scripture of when he sees Jesus, he bows his face all the way to the ground and he begs. That's what the scripture says. He begs Jesus, can you feel the desperation? And I want to relate this to loneliness. That that really was his deepest pain. It wasn't his disease. It was his loneliness, his isolation. And so he begs Jesus, Jesus, if you choose, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus respond to him? I do choose. Be made clean. And then there's this little piece of the passage, don't miss it, then he reaches out and he touches him. Which would, who knows how many weeks, months, or years it had been since this man had experienced human touch. And by touching him, then Jesus becomes unclean himself. He has touched a leper. After the healing, then the scripture tells us that Jesus withdraws to a deserted place to pray. And that's often what we see in the scriptures, that after Jesus has poured himself out in either preaching and teaching or in healing or in time with his disciples, he will often then withdraw to a deserted place to pray. One can only assume it's because that's where he finds restoration. 
But I want you to notice in this passage the contrast. The leper needed human contact to be made whole. And so Jesus gave him what he most needed. But then Jesus needed solitude to be made whole. And so he withdrew to a deserted place to pray. Now on the surface, solitude and loneliness appear to be fairly similar, right? They mean to be alone, but they are not the same thing at all. In fact, Pastor Heather and I were looking at this quote uh, from Psychology Today, and it says, loneliness is marked by a sense of isolation. Solitude, on the other hand, is a state of being alone without being lonely and can lead to self-awareness. It can lead to self-awareness. Repeatedly, we find Jesus modeling solitude as the place where he finds restoration. The masters of our faith have all named solitude as essential in a life of following after Jesus Christ. That is where they find their deepest communion with God. Last week's master, Ignatius of Loyola, We read about his early part of his life where after he experienced his conversion with Jesus Christ, then he took time to go live in a cave. I think that's what you would call solitude. So he lives in this cave so that he can be by himself, and it is in his time of solitude that he hears God's leading to him most closely. So today we're going to be looking at uh, another master of the faith. This is Evelyn Underhill, who also discovered communion with God through solitude. A short shout out here to Wyatt Smith. Some of you may have never had the opportunity to meet Wyatt, but he serves on our staff. He's our associate youth director and works primarily with our mid-high and junior high students. And if you've not ever had a chance to visit with Wyatt, you should take it. He, he is just filled with all kinds of interesting knowledge. And Pastor Heather was telling me as we were pre- preparing this series that Wyatt has done a lot of study on the mystics of our faith. Christian mystics specifically, because he has found that by reading of their experiences of the mystery or the holy, that he has discovered it grew his own faith. And so we asked him, Wyatt, who do you think we should lift up in this series? And he noted for us a saint that is rather contemporary. Um, This is Evelyn Underhill. She was born in 1875, passed away in 1941. But the rest of the saints we're going to be looking at in this sermon series are are much older than that. So we'll call her a modern mystic. Okay, and, and what we learned about Evelyn Underhill really had a lot to do with some of the things that Wyatt told us. Wyatt told us that Underhill began as an agnostic. Interesting place to begin a journey of faith. More and more those in our culture are beginning from a place of at least agnosticism, if not atheism. If they experience any transformation, any leading towards the Christian faith, it is a lot of times through this idea of mystery that God is bigger than anything we can define or explain. And so they begin to to be drawn more into a life of faith. And that was true for Evelyn Underhill as well. She was drawn into the Catholic Church. That's where she experienced uh, the life of community. But it was interesting because she began her exploration in Neoplatonism which is much more of a philosophy than uh, a faith tradition. 
But that led her closer and closer to Christ until she did eventually make her profession of faith um, in Jesus Christ. We see in Evelyn's language choices her desire to make mysticism accessible to the masses instead of just those who practice rigid religious traditions like friars and nuns, people who would set aside their whole life to practice their faith. Well, Evelyn Underhill said, really, there needs to be practice for the rest of us you know, that live real lives. And how is it that we also, in the midst of all of the other pieces of our life, can experience unity and oneness with God? And that was a big theme of hers, unity and oneness with God. Her work is very reminiscent of Eastern and Asian traditions with major themes, including that unity or oneness with God, exploring the mysteries of reality and experience, and the importance of the present moment which she would say is the only moment that truly exists. We kind of have to admit that here as well, right? Whatever moment has just passed is gone. And whatever moment is yet to come, we don't know. We can't predict. The only moment that we have is this one. And so she was really interested in how is it that you experience the divine, the holy, in the present moment? Underhill brought a modern perspective to ancient understandings of this oneness that we all participate in, which is really such a powerful theme of all of the mystics. And what she said is most of us, we don't even realize we're participating in it. That this unity that we could have with God, we miss simply because we don't pay attention and we don't notice it. So she was really into the practices of noticing And for her, that happened in solitude. That you have to take time, like Jesus did, to withdraw to those deserted places to pray. Because that's where you experience this oneness or this communion with God. She challenged the major Christian theological norms by presenting an approach to spirituality that transcends religion. That doesn't depend upon the church to be the giver of an spiritual experience with God, but that anyone can find that and transcend themselves um, in their communion with God. Heather's research turned up a few other things about Evelyn Underhill. She was the first woman to lecture at an Oxford college in theology, so she kind of knew her stuff, and that doesn't just happen. She was the first woman to lecture Anglican clergy and one of the first women to be included in the Church of England commissions. So she's probably pretty... um, Sassy would be my guess. Um, Because usually when you have to be the first of anything, you kind of have to demand your place at the table in that way. And so uh, I'm guessing that she would have been an interesting person to talk to, but, but probably pretty forceful. These accomplishments, along with her work as a theological editor and her role as a spiritual director and retreat leader, made Evelyn Underhill the spiritual director for her generation. Um, which would have probably been about two generations ago because she joined the ultimate communion with God in 1941 when she passed away. This is one of her more famous quotes. We mostly spend our lives conjugating three verbs, to want, to have, and to do. Forgetting that none of these verbs have any ultimate significance except so far as they so far as they are transcended by and included in the fundamental verb to be. So her push really was about how is it 
that we can just simply be in the present moment and experience in that moment God's presence with us. My hunch is that we won't discover that until we quiet the chatter in our souls. Um, one of the language uh, phrases, I should say, that is often used to describe what happens whenever people enter solitude, at least in the beginning phases of making that a practice of their spiritual life, is they call it the monkey in the brain. It's like it just won't calm down. And so you do enter solitude, but all you can hear is your own thoughts, your own chatter, uh, your own thinking about what you're supposed to be doing or uh, imagining what is overwhelming to you and how is it that you quiet that so that you would be able to hear the other voice which oftentimes won't compete with the chatter and that's the voice of God. And so that's what Evelyn Underhill uh, was really trying to, to tease out. How is it that, that you can quiet that chatter? And she would say the first thing is you have to be where you can be alone. You have to engage this practice of solitude. She defines a life of prayer as our whole life toward heaven. Isn't that beautiful? It's not, it's not a moment or it's not moments. Like I pray 15 minutes a day. That was never her style. Her style was I want to live my whole life directed towards heaven. She says no matter what type of prayer you pray, you're always, when you're praying, you're in communion with God. And so you can experience prayer in all of your life, not just in those moments of solitude. But she would say that solitude is the place where you can most clearly hear from God. That you can live a life of prayer in many different ways, but in order to hear from God, you have to get away. You have to withdraw. You have to, to be in the desert. And so this was the question that Pastor Heather and I were playing with this week as we were writing the sermon together what is it that gets in the way of us wanting to withdraw, wanting for us to seek out solitude? Because my experience when I visit with people, and even in my own life when I think about, you know, I'm going to go spend 20 minutes by myself, or even a day, or a couple of days. I want to be in solitude. There's, there's usually this initial catch, which is sort of feels like, oh no. Because it's kind of hard to be with yourself sometimes. And, and in solitude, there's nobody else to be with. And so who you are kind of rises to the top. And that can cause a lot of hesitancy in wanting to seek out this, this practice of solitude. And so I wonder if loneliness is actually not one of our chief obstacles or barriers to solitude. Now follow with me here because this is, I'm, I'm hunching this and I know that on the surface it doesn't seem like it could be, but just consider that all of the masters of the faith knew that we don't discover deep communion with God if we are afraid of solitude. And yet, engaging solitude means we're going to have to face our fear of being lonely. And sometimes I wonder if that doesn't drive us away from the very thing we need to find real, deep connection with God. That in solitude, we finally have that intimacy with God. And because we're afraid of being lonely, we won't do it.
And if loneliness is on the rise, as the statistics indicate that it is, it becomes harder and harder and harder for us to seek out moments of solitude. So let's talk just for a little bit about the word communion, because when we use that word in church, we're often thinking about coming forward, as we do in this service, once a month, and we receive King's Hawaiian and Welch's grape juice. Oh, it's so good. Um, I love that psalm that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's communion for me. And, and I, you know, that's a really wonderful experience, and many times we do have an intimacy with God when we come to the table. But intimacy with God can happen in many other ways and places. And so I want us to, to expand our definition of communion, to think about it like this, sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is, is on a mental or spiritual level. That, that in that moment, God is sharing with us and we are sharing with God so powerfully that we experience a oneness with God. We don't know how it happens. It's a mystery, but it's beautiful and it restores us. So here's our challenge, friends. Pastor Heather and I, we want to challenge you this week to take a trip to the desert. Last week, our challenge to you was to pray the examen which uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola gave us as a prayer that you pray at the end of the day to look back over your, your day and ask two questions. Where was God most present and where did I avoid God? And, and in those questions then beginning to, to um, hone our listening skills better for where it is that God is most clearly speaking to us. So that was last week. This week our challenge to you is sometime this week Take some time for solitude so that you can be in communion, sharing intimately with God. And we want to encourage you to let the Trinitarian language for God be your guide. We talk about God as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all one God, but in eternal relationship with the very self of God. Now, that's as much explanation as I really can give you about the Trinity because this is what we say is one of the great mysteries of our faith. It has helped me, though, to use a different language around the Trinity, God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. That's, that's just a different lens on the same thing. We're still looking at the self of God and, and the creator, redeemer, sustainer still in relationship, but it helps us understand those roles of God a little bit more. And, and Pastor Heather and I were wondering that if in our time of solitude, if we could let God be for us creator, redeemer, and sustainer, and that we let that focus our time of solitude, our meditations, so that instead of it being about us doing anything in our time of solitude, that we could just simply be, and we could let God do it. God gets to be creator. God gets to be redeemer. And surely... Surely God is sustainer. God does the acting, and we are simply to be. So we would encourage you to be intentional with this holy time at least once this week. Allow yourself the space that solitude can give you to restore your soul. And our final request to you is, don't you think that if Jesus needed this, that surely we, we would need it too? We want to encourage you to engage this practice of solitude and find there the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.